Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 22 as we continue our series, The Certainty of the Savior, and really somewhat of a, a sub-series, The Passion of Christ, as we deal with the last few days of his life in the Gospel of Luke. And this morning we'll be looking at verses 39 through 46. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Luke 22, beginning in verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Let's pray together. Father, we pray for grace and strength this day to live for your glory, and we know our weakness, our feebleness, and our frailty. And so we join in with our Savior, and we join in with his admonition to his disciples that we might pray, that we might endure, that we might overcome temptation and trials of life. For your glory, for your honor, grant us that grace and strength through prayer. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The hour of Jesus' persecution and suffering and crucifixion is drawing near. And we find him doing something that's not really that surprising because it was something Luke tells us was his custom. He went to his favorite fellowship getaway, one of his favorite fellowship getaways, to be not only with his disciples but to commune with his heavenly Father. Jesus, after instituting the Lord's Supper, left the upper room and went to the Mount of Olives and to his secret garden, if you will, the Garden of Gethsemane there, a place that he regularly enjoyed fellowship with his Father. One commentator put it this way as we begin to enter into the garden, we now enter the inner sanctuary of gospel history and behold the all-inspiring commencement of the Lord's passion. So what are we to learn? Is Jesus, before his crucifixion, withdrew into the garden to pray and encourage his disciples to do so. As he subsequently was going to face hardships, as his disciples would face those hardships, Jesus is revealing to us how grace is received to endure those hardships and trials of persecution in the Christian life. And so we see in his prayer, Jesus' call to prayer is a reminder that communion with the Father is necessary to overcome the temptations of the flesh. When Jesus retreated to the garden, his disciples followed and he stopped and he said, I want you to pray that you would overcome temptation. The word for temptation here is a word that's not just temptation to sin, but the trials and the temptations and the tests that come with following Jesus. 
the challenges that we face in a post-Christian culture that you face daily, you feel relentlessly. Jesus says, I want you to overcome that temptation or trial, that test. Remember earlier he had said he knew they were going to. He would give them grace to do so. In verse 28, we had read earlier that you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. Same word. And so here in the garden, Jesus is helping them understand how they might endure through those temptations and trials and tests. And here is how. It is through our union and communion with our Heavenly Father through the means of grace of prayer. Constant, fervent, persistent prayer. God says, through this, I will provide for you every grace necessary to endure, to not only survive, but to thrive. It is through prayer that we begin to understand the intercessory ministry of the Son. It is through prayer that we receive the outpouring and the power of the Holy Spirit to live the Christian life. It is through prayer that Jesus drives home this promise to our hearts. There is no temptation, same word, that is such common demand, but God is faithful and He will grant you the grace to endure through the greatest trials. He will provide a way of escape that we might be able to endure. But how do we pray? Sometimes when we are exhausted, when we are in anguish, when we are distraught, we don't even know what to pray. Thankfully, Paul tells us in Romans 8 that at those moments, even the Holy Spirit will come and grant us this connection with the Father in prayer as our hearts cry out to Him. But I want you to remember also something about the context of where we are in this section of Luke. We've heard about the mission of the church being the kingdom of God, the kingdom mission of the church the promise of God's provision to provide for us in that mission, the call to trust Him, the insidious attacks of the evil one. All of this has been running throughout this section of Luke. But you remember earlier, Jesus has taught His disciples how to pray. And it's amazing how that pattern of prayer fits exactly where they are and exactly where we are. Think for a moment of the Lord's Prayer. When you're not sure what to pray, your heart's in anguish. Jesus says, let me give you a pattern. Begin like this, our Father who art in heaven. And immediately we're reminded that the Father with whom Jesus communed with in that garden is our heavenly Father by grace through faith in His Son. That we as Christians, as the dearly loved sons and daughters of the King, have direct access to the same one before whom Jesus was praying in the garden. We have this privilege of prayer and our longing is that this great God and Father would be glorified, that he would be hallowed. Begin there, being reminded whose child you are. And then we pray your kingdom come. There's the kingdom mission of Christ's church, the worldwide advancement of the kingdom of God through every nook and cranny of this planet. Your will be done. Oh God, even as Jesus wrestled in the garden with that prayer, would you make me ready, willing, and able to submit to your will that good, pleasing, and perfect will? Father, would you give us this day our daily bread? Things are tight. Things are difficult. We don't know where our economy is heading. 
But Lord, would you provide and would you provide in such a way that the kingdom mission of your church will be provided for in full that the gospel might be made known. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lord, I need grace of forgiveness, but also the grace to forgive. Would you grant me that? And then so pertinent to the situation right here in Luke, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. How desperately I need that kind of prayer to reflect where I am in my life. How desperately we need that kind of prayer. And Jesus has given us a model. When you're at a loss of words, maybe just run to the Lord's Prayer. Now, you might not want to use this model all the time as a pattern for prayer, but it, it's something our Savior has given us to keep our wandering minds and our straying hearts on track. It's something that keeps our wills in line with His will so that we're not simply trying to use Him to accomplish what we want in prayer, but we're honestly saying, Lord, not my will, but Your will be done. But there's a problem still. Matthew, in his gospel account of what's going on here, reminds us of that problem. Twice, Jesus has to say, pray that you might not fall into temptation. The second time he has to say, it's because they fell asleep. And Jesus, in Matthew's account, says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And we've all felt that. How many times have we read a really good book on prayer? We've been in a Bible study that, that focused for 13, 14, 15 weeks on prayer. We had a sermon on prayer. And we say, this time, prayer is going to become part of the warp and woof of my life. It's going to become part of my daily routine from morning to noon to evening. I want to learn to pray without ceasing, only to later realize we have forgotten. And like the disciples, slumbered in our spiritual pursuits. Sometimes we just want to. The, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I remember as a freshman in Clemson several decades ago, hearing Dr. Charles Dunn. He was the head of the political science department. I heard him talk about his personal devotional life. He talked about how he got up early in the morning while it was still dark. He read the scriptures. He meditated on them. He reviewed his memory verses for the week. He spent time in prayer. But one thing he noticed, he would often fall asleep. And so he said, what I decided to do, I would have my daily devotion standing up. I would go into my study. I would have my Bible in my hand. And I'd walk around. I would read out loud. I would pray out loud. I would meditate out loud. I would cite my verses out loud. I would sing out loud because he knew something. The spirit was willing, but the body's weak. I don't know what your method might be, but just as Jesus called the disciples to be alert, to be awake, to be aware, and to pray that you not fall into temptation, we need to find ways in which, by God's grace, we will seek to do so. One writer said this about Jesus' disciples and what they were about to face. For only by remaining in living communion with God will they be able to resist the temptation that will assail them and the terrible happenings of the night and the following days. And my friends, that is true of me and it is true of you. 
only through communion and union and fellowship with the living God will we receive the grace that we need to overcome temptation that so easily assails us and pulls us down. But you know something about this episode in the garden. It's more than just a reminder of my need of regular, consistent, persistent prayer. It's much more than that. It's more than simply a lesson on a need of prayer. Rather, it serves as an entrance into the inner sanctum of our Savior's heart. You see, Jesus' prayer receives, uh, reveals the heart and the emotion of the life of our Savior. As Jesus knelt in prayer, it was evident that he was in intimate communion with the Father. And so here in this passage and in the garden, we are entering not only the inner sanctuary of the gospel history, but we are entering into the holy of holies of Jesus' heart. We have an opportunity through the inspiration of the Spirit to peer into the heart of our Savior and to see the intimacy He enjoyed with His Father and at the same time the struggle He had in His humanity with the Father's will regarding the cross. As Jesus faced the prospect of the cross, His knees buckled as He fell to the ground and He prayed, Father, Father... If you are willing, remove this cup from me. In his humanity, Jesus recoiled from the cross. He recoiled from the pain and the heartache and the anger. His body and soul shrank from it and he pled that it be removed. You know, I don't particularly like pain. I don't like Surgery. My wife, Becky, had surgery on a broken wrist this past week. Betsy Barron had surgery on her shoulder. I've had three knee surgeries. Can, can you imagine surgery without anesthesia? I can't imagine my ACL reconstruction without anesthesia. And yet what Jesus was about to endure humanly would have been far more painful than ACL reconstruction without anesthesia. His heart was filled with anguish and he was filled with fear. He was so overwhelmed by it that the gospel writers tell us that sweat began to drop from the fur of his brow as blood would spill from an open wound. He's wrestling in prayer and is in anguish. The writer to the Hebrews speaks of a time that I think no doubt had to deal with this time here in the garden. He wrote these words about Jesus. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Do you hear him weeping? Do you hear him wailing in anguish? The prospect of the cross. 19th century Princeton theologian, B.B. Warfield said this about the anguish. Our Lord, though he died on the cross, yet died not of the cross, but of a broken heart. That is to say, the strain of his mental sufferings. 
But why such mental suffering and anguish of heart? Why did Jesus recoil from the prospects of suffering and death? Many a martyr throughout history has faced death with greater outward bravery. They really have. So why was Jesus so gripped with terror? The answer is in the cup. He said, Father, if it's your will, take this cup from me. Many of us have seen in our previous studies what was in that cup. Jeremiah tells us what was in the cup. Ezekiel tells us what was in the cup. Jeremiah describes it as a cup that's filled with the anger and foaming fury and wrath of God. Ezekiel spoke of that cup as a cup of horror and desolation. It was the prospect of this concentrated hell from which Jesus recoiled. His knees buckled, his hand trembled, his body quaked, his voice cried out. His heart broke and his soul shrank. Every fiber of his humanity recoiled from the hellish horror of that cup of wrath. No martyr in history has ever come close to facing anything so horrific. That's why he cried out in anguish, Father, oh Father, if it's your will, take this cup from me. But in that same breath, we hear a remarkable word. R.C. Sproul used to say he believed the most beautiful word in all of Scripture was the word but. Let me give you an example. In Romans, the first three chapters are filled with our sin and guilt and depravity and the deserved judgment of a holy and righteous and just God. And Paul, for almost three chapters, highlights and piles on again and again the guilt and misery of our sin and of why every last single one of us deserves to drink of that hellish cup of wrath. And then he comes to Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. And here's that beautiful word. But, but, now the righteousness of God has been made known. A righteousness that's apart from law. The righteousness that is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And so Paul has said we're hopelessly and helplessly condemned. But God, here in Jesus' prayer, I think we find another single word that rivals that wonderful, beautiful word. And it is the word in that same breath, nevertheless. Father, if it's your will, will you take this cup of concentrated hell? Will you take this cup from me? Nevertheless, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And with this, the Son, according to the eternal covenant of His blood, willingly submitted Himself to the Father's will. That will which in eternity past determined to crush His Son 
to pour out his wrath upon him, to condemn him in order that his wrath towards us might not only be averted, but that it might be fully satisfied in Christ. The other day, one of our internationals posted this quote on her Facebook page, which captured from this theologian what's taking place here. God was for eternity perfectly satisfied with His Son. But in the moment He saw my sin in Him, He poured His infinite wrath on Him. And then these words followed. How serious is the sin we trivialize. How serious is the sin we trivialize. My friends, Jesus was willing to drain the cup of God's wrath down to its last drop so that we would never have to taste of that condemnation but only taste of His mercy and of His grace. And so we see in Jesus' prayer, it reveals not only His undaunted submission to the Father's will, but also His undying love for His people. Jesus' holy resolve to submit to the Father's will demonstrates the extent He was willing to go, not only for submission's sake, but for our salvation's sake. Though He recoiled with every fiber of His being from the cross, from the punishment of being beaten, ridiculed, mocked, and scorned, of being convicted and condemned and crucified, he did so all for love's sake. Scottish theologian Donald MacLeod wrote these words, The wonder of the love of Christ for his people is not that for their sake he faced death without fear, but that for their sake he faced it terrified. Terrified by what he knew and terrified by what he did not know. He took damnation lovingly. He took damnation lovingly. For the love of His people. That's why Phil Riken said that if I understand anything, if I understand anything about the Garden of Gethsemane, it's how much Jesus loves me and how little I understand and how difficult it is to imagine that great love. My friends, as we've entered into the holy of holies of Jesus' heart, we've caught not only a glimpse of His willingness to submit to the Father's will, but His willingness to do so for love's sake, for our sake. We've caught a glimpse of the love of God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that love that is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, this directed toward his children, those who are trusting in Christ. And that love has been sealed and secured with no less than the blood of the covenant, the blood of Christ. It is an undying love for his people. And so having listened in on Jesus' brief prayer in the garden, we must ask the question this morning, do you know that love? 
Do you know the undying love of Christ, the sacrificial love of Christ? Have you personally received it by faith? Have you reached out your hands in faith and embraced the Savior, His nail-pierced hands, His nail-pierced feet? Have you trusted in Christ? And do you know the love of God in Christ poured out for you? I plead with you this morning, if you do not, to do so. For there are only two cups of which you must drink. Either one day you must drink of the cup in fury of the wrath of God. Or in exchange, you may drink of the grace and mercy of the new covenant in His blood. For those who have done so, how might we respond to the love of God in Christ? Robert Murray McShane in 1837 penned these words to a wonderful hymn. Chosen not for good in me, wakened up from wrath to flee, Hidden in, the Spirit, hidden in the Savior's side, by the Spirit sanctified. Teach me, Lord, on earth to show, by my love, how much I owe. So what might it look like in my life and your life to show by our love how much we owe? First, there will be a response of joy-filled Worship. As a result of what Christ was willing to do and endure, I am cleansed. I'm forgiven. You're cleansed and forgiven. Our sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. And the very righteousness of Jesus now clothes you. All the righteousness God requires of us has been provided for us and is received by grace through faith in Christ. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that should evoke within us, if our hearts are in tune and resonating with that gospel, a sense of joy-filled worship. I've shared with you before the story in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress of Christian Climbing the Hill. Let me read that portion of, of Pilgrim's Progress as Christian climbs the hill with a burden on his back. He ran till he came to a place somewhat ascending, and upon the place stood a cross. And below at the bottom... A sepulcher. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosened from off his shoulders. It fell from off his back and began to tumble. And so continued to do so until it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in and I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, He has given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. And then Christian began to weep. He began to weep with joy filled worship at the sight of that cross. Second, in light of the cross, we must, we must take seriously our sin. We cannot take it and treat it lightly or tritely. We cannot trivialize our sin at all. For to trivialize our sin is to trivialize the cross. To trivialize our sin is to trivialize our Savior. We will sing in just a moment. You who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great. Here, the cross, here may view its nature rightly. Here, its guilt may estimate. 
Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. And finally, we show by our love how much we owe as we pray. Father, not my will, but your will be done. Father, forgive me for trying to use you in prayer to accomplish my agenda and my hopes and dreams in life. Lord, would you submit my will to your will, that will which is good and pleasing and perfect. Lord Jesus, would you forgive me of my sin and by your spirit, would you make me ready, willing, and able to follow your will no matter what the cost, no matter what the loss. It may mean dying to my hopes and my dreams, my aspirations. But Father, no sacrifice is too great in light of the sacrifice of your Savior. Lord, help me submit so that you're glorified and your glory is maximized in my life. Oh, Father, may your love constrain me towards a willing submission and joyful obedience to the Father's will. In light of the cross, Lord Jesus, today, this week, may we show by our love how much we owe. Let's pray together. Father, as we reflect upon our Savior's agony in the garden, of sweat pouring from his brow is drops of blood from an open wound. The crying and the screaming of taking the cup, and yet we hear that word nevertheless. For submission's sake, for sacrifice's sake, for salvation's sake, Father, we thank you that your Son willingly submitted to your will. And as we consider the cross, I pray this week our worship will be enhanced. Our hatred of sin will grow. And that our love for you expressed in a willingness to submit the entirety of our beings to your will as long as you're glorified. May that be worked in you, motivated by grace and empowered by your spirit. So Father, in light of the cross... Change us for your glory and honor and praise. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen.